Welcome to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Talk radio to inspire, inform, and stimulate. Bringing you enlightened discussions with authors, creatives, innovative business and health professionals, and ordinary people living extraordinary lives. Sharing their expertise and life stories. Making a difference, one word at a time. Now here's your host, Vicki St. Clair. And welcome, everybody. Welcome, welcome. Well, today we are joined by two extraordinary writers, both with their debut books that are already winning awards and receiving accolades. Coming up around 1230, we're joined by Sarah Smarsh, who's written extensively on the class and the working on class and work, the working poor. Excuse me. Her new book is Heartland, a memoir of working hard and being broke in the richest country on earth. Author and political activist Barbara Ehrenreich says this book is so much more than even the best sociology. She describes it as poetry. But first, I'd like to uh, introduce Canadian writer and debut novelist Ellen Keith. Her book, The Dutch Wife, is the winner of HarperCollins UBC Prize for Best New Fiction. She's also the recipient of the Anton Fiction Prize and the James Patrick Follinsby Memorial Scholarship in Creative Writing. And she spends much of her time abroad, traveling across South America. I hear she likes to dance salsa and tango and cycle along the canals of Amsterdam, where she uh, currently lives. And uh, she's joining us via Skype today from Alberta. So, Ellen Keith, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. And I should say the name of your book is The Dutch Wife. And um, as I said, already winning awards, it has been out for a little while, but it's only just gone international, right? Yes, it came out in Canada at the end of April. And in the past couple of months, it's come out in translation in the Netherlands, the Czech Republic, and just a week and a half ago or so in the United States. Mm. So I know you've traveled extensively. Uh, I read that writing this book took you around the world, but um, I also read that you you used to work in a cubicle and one day you just, uh, well, not literally, but you decided to pack it all in, pack your backpack and took off with your cameras. So uh, tell us what sparked that move for you. I think I've always had a real bad case of the travel bug. Um, my first experience with long-term travel was when I was 10. We went, My family went on a six-month camping trip of Europe. So already since that age, I was kind of itching to get back on the road and I finished my um, undergraduate studies and then I worked for a year in an office and I was just pretty much saving the whole time thinking all right let me see how much money I can save and how long of a trip I can I can plan. And so how long did you go for? I went for 10 and a half months and most of it almost all of it was on my own through South America and a couple times a brother or a friend would join for Two weeks or so. Mm-hmm. And you went to 50 countries, right? Oh, you yes. have, have been over yeah. the course, yeah. Yeah, not all on that trip, but um, even while writing this novel, I was I was trying to settle in, in Amsterdam, but I was having some issues getting my residence permit. So I was on the go a lot, and I think I worked on this novel in about 25 different countries in some form or another. And so you have Dutch heritage, I understand. Tell us about that, if you would. Yeah, so both of my grandparents on my mother's side grew up in the Netherlands, and they immigrated during the economic crisis that followed World War II in Europe. And 
my grandmother was actually, she was just a little girl during the German occupation of the Netherlands. And, but she still has quite a few memories of how they had to go one winter just surviving on essentially turnips and tulip bulbs. Mohammed, Hamadaniel to the office. Okay, wait, we need to explain. Um, Ellen is giving a, a speech today at her. Is this your your former high school, Ellen? That's my former high school. Okay, so she's giving was giving a speech today at the high school, and so she's there at the high school ready. So. Uh, we may have a couple of other announcements come over the loudspeaker there while she's while she's talking with us. Unfortunately, yeah, I'm um, sorry, I didn't anticipate that. Okay, so um, go ahead. We're talking about uh, your grandparents and yeah. So my so my grandmother, even though she was quite young, she still has some pretty vivid memories of the war. And she had a brother who was supposed to be called up for forced labor in Germany, and he was about twenty, but of course, the circumstances that they were going to be working under were horrible. So he went into hiding, ended up getting diphtheria. But it, because they couldn't call a doctor for risk of being exposed, he ended up passing away at age 20. So while none of my Dutch family was on a battlefield or anything, they still had a very intimate experience with World War II. Mm. And so I'm guessing growing up, you heard stories of the World War experience which I did too from my grandparents is that what interested you in historical fiction or have you always been interested in it it definitely played a big role I think as I mentioned before when I did that big camping trip of Europe when I was younger that sort of planted a, a real seed we visited so many interesting places on that trip but what really struck an emotional chord was going to some of these battlefields, um, standing in craters from bombs that exploded during World War One. We went to the, the field in a French village where my great uncle's plane was shot down and we actually found a debris from the engine. Um, and so things like that, it brought history to life in me in, in a way that I'd never experienced before just reading out of textbooks or being in school. And I think for me, always as a reader, historical fiction is always what's spoken to me the most. Mm. And so all of the characters uh, are fictional in your book, The Dutch Wife, but the story is rooted in historical fact. And so let's begin with that, Ellen, um, because this is a story that I have heard before, but it is very little known. So tell us how you first got the idea for this book, where that, um, where that interest sparked. Well, when I first started thinking about this novel, I was really focused on trying to look at what happened during the Holocaust from a slightly different angle. And specifically, I was really curious about the German perspective of the war. I, by this time, was starting to live in Europe, and I had friends and colleagues who were German. And I was, I, th I thought, you know, from growing up in a North American perspective, I've always looked at the war in a very black and white way, that we were on the right side and the Germans were on the wrong side. And so I wanted to kind of explore the mindset of an what you could call an ordinary German citizen who got thrown into the middle of the war and how they became involved in some of the horrific things that the Nazis were doing and how they justified their actions. And that was sort of the root of the story. And I really wanted to introduce a strong female perspective into the novel to offset this perspective of an SS officer. And so I was trying to think of how I could do that. And that's how I ended up stumbling across 
the existence of these camp brothels in in the concentration camps. Mm. And so it, it was in 1942, you write in the uh, historical note at the back of your book, um, in 1942, under Himmler's orders, the first prisoners' brothels opened um, at a concentration camp and one of its sub-camps. And basically, some women were given the choice to go basically work themselves to death or to go into the brothel. Is that right? Yeah. So some women were were just forced. They were just carted off without really any choice of their fate. What happens in my novel and is a reflection of how the women were chosen for selection at Buchenwald camp, where my novel takes place, is that they, the SS officers made an initial selection of women and asked out of this selection who would be willing to volunteer. And they sort of tried to entice them with these promise of these really good living conditions that were much, much better than the life-threatening circumstances that these women were currently living in in the camp at Ravensbrück. And they were also promising some freedom that they would release the prisoners after six months. Of course, this wasn't true, but I think if you're faced with a decision that could be life and death, um, something that you would never consider otherwise may ultimately be the choice you have to make. Right, right. And that's the choice that your character had to make. So um, I think we're going to take a quick break here and um, we'll introduce your main characters when we come back. The book is called The Dutch Wife. Uh, It's a debut novel, already winning prizes, uh, receiving accolades. It's doing very well. My guest, of course, is Ellen Keith. And we will be right back. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Parkinson's disease affects as many as one million people in the United States. At the Parkinson's Disease Foundation, it's our mission to beat this disease. To learn about the Parkinson's Disease Foundation, or if you want to help support our work, visit our website, pdf.org, or call us at 800-457-6676. In the Northwest, contact the Northwest Parkinson's Foundation at nwpf.org. At Sundown Communications, we find that most of our clients are brilliant at what they do, but they lack the time and resources to write and create business messaging that delivers results. That's where we come in, providing a diverse range of professional copywriting services for fresh strategic web content, PR, advertising and promotion, marketing, speeches, and much more. Call us today so you can focus on what you do best, and we'll do the rest. Call 800-495-7617. That's 800-495-7617. 180 over 111, and I had a stroke. I couldn't speak or walk. 150 over 90, and I had a stroke. This is what high blood pressure sounds like. You might not feel its symptoms, but the results from a stroke are far from silent. Get back on your treatment plan or talk with your doctor to create a plan that works for you. Go to loweryourhpp.org. Head to toe, everything's changed. Brought to you by the American Stroke Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. Hi, this is Vicki St. Clair. If you have a business, service, or event and would like to deliver your message to a large audience, call me at 425-269-4772. Let Conversations Live shine the spotlight on you. Call 425-269-4772. 
Thanks for listening to Conversations Live with Vicky St. Clair. Find out about upcoming shows at conversationslive.net. Want to hear something different from talk radio? Keep your dial on Alternative Talk 1150. Welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Conversations Live with Vicky St. Clair. And my guest is uh, author Ellen Keith. Her new book, The Dutch Wife, it's actually been out a little while, but it's just gone international. It's the winner of the HarperCollins UBC Prize for Best New Fiction. And uh, I should explain up front, Ellen is joining us from a high school, her old high school in Alberta, Canada today, uh, even though she normally lives in Amsterdam. But she's joining us from there today. She's giving us a, a speech. And occasionally we might get a little announcement coming over the loudspeaker. So I'm just warning you. Um, so, all right. So we've talked, Ellen, about the, uh, the true story of Himmler ordering these brothel camps be set up and giving women, some women, the choice, go into labor camps where, you know, you're almost certainly going to die or, you know, come work in the brothel and we'll let you go after six months, uh, which was not true. But... Um, but a difficult choice for people to make. And, um, you know, women were, were given that choice. And so your main character in the book is Marika, Marika de Graaf. And she and her husband are arrested. They're deported to different concentration camps in Germany. And she is one of those women who's given that, that difficult choice. Here she is, a married woman in love with her husband. Uh, you can go to the labor camp or you can go work in the brothel. So... Set, tell us about her and, and why she made this choice. So Marek and her husband are in the resistance and they are arrested for their involvement in making crystal radios for the underground to use and for people to listen to what's, to the BBC from occupied Nether- the occupied Netherlands. And yes, initially she's sent to this woman's camp at Ravensbrück in Germany. And when the SS officers come to do this selection for women, to go to the brothel, she recognizes the name of the camp that her husband's been sent to. So as she's standing there, she has to make the decision, is this something, my marriage vows, that I'm willing to jeopardize or sacrifice with the hopes of finding my husband and letting him know that I'm alive? And she ends up doing that, and that sets everything else in the story in motion. Right, right. And so tell us a little bit about her uh, as as a protagonist, how you developed that character. Is there any of you in her, any of your, your feisty grandmother in her? Yes, I think, as you notice, the dedication in the novel is to my grandmother. And I think my grandmother is definitely one of the most spirited women I know. She's in her 80s, but she still has more wit and quicker comebacks than anyone else I can think of. And she's definitely not afraid to speak her mind. And I think that's kind of a reflection of a Dutch character in general. From, from my experience, I've lived in Amsterdam five years now, and I find the Dutch to be quite direct, uh, sometimes to the point of being very blunt. But you always know exactly what they're thinking, and they're not afraid to stand up for their opinions. And I really wanted to capture that in Marijke's character. I, I, she is in a very dangerous, life-threatening position, but she's still she still manages to keep her own spirits up and those of the, the women around her because she is so strong. Right, right. I, I want to read the dedication that you made to your grandmother uh, <laughs> it, it, in the book. To my grandmother, Harmion Deus, I hope I said her name right, Yes. Who, who lived and lost during the war and left everything behind in pursuit of love. 
and then in parentheses, your G-rated copy is on its way. <laughs> Did she get a G-rated copy? Or... <laughs> no, in the end, she got the original. She uh, did a survey, I think, of everyone who's living in her senior's condo to, to ask them what they thought of the more graphic content in some of the scenes of the novel. <laughs> and what was the consensus? I think overall, um, most of them said, you know, we've lived through all this. Uh, we, a lot of them lived through the, the occupation of the Netherlands and they said, nothing can shock us at this stage. Mm, yeah, interesting. So the story, uh, you have a second storyline uh, set into the book, woven through the book. Um, it's, this second storyline is set in the late 1970s in Argentina uh, during the Argentine Dirty War. What was the significance of including that second storyline for you? Well, I don't want to give too much away, but um, let's just say there is a link between the characters that comes out gradually through the novel. But for me, on a broader scale, I really was struck by so much of the conflicts that happened across the world in the 20th century and how you see history repeating itself again and again. And when I visited Argentina, I was very moved by the sight of all of these mothers and grandmothers marching around, around the Plaza de Mayo in Buenos Aires. And they're holding all these signs and photos of their sons, daughters, grandchildren who have been missing for decades. And they're demanding answers and more transparency from the government. And I, I was really, yeah, very moved by that. And also intrigued by all the connections that Argentina has with Europe and especially with Nazi Germany. And so I wanted to find ways to show those kind of parallels between these different regimes and how they treated their citizens. And so I I think a lot of what the characters go through in the novels, whether it's the treatment of homosexual prisoners or um, the close proximity that the officers had who were overseeing the prisoners to actually the living quarters of the prisoners themselves and how these kind of regular, uh, luxurious life carried on for the officers while people were suffering only meters away. And that was really striking to me. Right. And of course, your other leading protagonist is um, SS officer Karl Muller, um, who himself struggles with this situation. Yeah, I think... As I said earlier, I really wanted to get this German perspective in it and to try and look a little bit at the psychology of, of of the perpetrator. And he was a really hard character to pin down. I had to go through a lot of drafts trying to get his character right. Um, some people who read it early on felt that he was far too nice, far too likable, um, and that he wasn't quite involved enough in the day-to-day running of the camp. And... I, but it, it's difficult, I think. As a writer, you become quite attached to your characters and you don't always want to force them to do bad things. So it was a really interesting learning process for me trying to write his character. Yeah, I'm sure it was. So as a writer, um, I mean, it does raise uh, a lot of questions and you know, ethical concerns, questions about um, you know, what, what lines would we cross uh, when they become blurred like that. But As a writer, how do you define good and evil? I don't think it's very clear cut. I think it really depends on what position we find ourselves in and our own 
opinion of good and evil, I think, can shift a lot. I think I tried to force my characters in this book to do things that are quite questionable in some ways, that would put their own morals into question. And I think that's a reflection of our reality. It's really easy for us to look at a situation from the outside and say, oh, you know, if if I had been say a, a plane is crashing I would be the one that would stay till the end trying to help everyone out rather than being the first off the plane um, we, we can make those judgments but it's really hard to know until we're in a situation where we fall on that spectrum of of good and evil or selfish and selfless yeah there's a quote at the beginning of your book uh which is so true, I think. It is, in fact, far easier to act under conditions of tyranny than to think, by Hannah Arendt. Um, so what, what do you think, again, as a writer, what can be forgiven, what cannot be forgiven? Where do those lines cross? That's a really, really good question. Again, I think it really depends on the person you're asking. I think... Uh, you really always need to consider the circumstances that someone is in. I think also if we we look today at political or ideological differences, if you're just judging a person from their position and not really having a chance to talk to them and understand their perspective, it's a lot easier to say that what something that they're doing is unforgivable or to cast judgment. But I think it, at the end of the day, it is really important to try and engage to the point that we can understand a little bit more before we we decide whether or not we're going to forgive. Right, right. So you've traveled extensively. My mother always used to say it's the best education in the world, and I would agree with her. How has traveling for this book, uh, researching and writing it, how has that changed you? It was a very all-immersive process. I think the most valuable research that I felt I did in terms of what enabled me to really get into the heart of the story was visiting these concentration camps and visiting Buenos Aires myself. I w made a couple of trips to Buchenwald and one when I first started writing the novel and one when I just handed in the manuscript to my editor. And it was very powerful to be able to stand there where I envisioned my character standing to see the remnants of this camp brothel, to see the stone stairways of the officers' villas that were still standing. And I think it's so different learning about the Holocaust or what happened in the war when you're actually there in the middle of it. Um, in my apartment in Amsterdam, we have a newspaper hanging on the wall from 1940 that was found during renovations of our bathroom. They uncovered a hiding spot that had been built during the war wow. for people to hide in in our bathroom and that's something that I'd never experienced before living in Europe and really feeling so much closer to the war and that type of research really being there physically being able to travel and and also I think be exposed to people's different ways of thinking really informed a lot of the plot and the character development in my novel yeah yeah and so you live in Amsterdam now, um, and I know you live and work there. Um, back in a cubicle, I read on your yes. but but you know at least you're out there traveling and doing stuff. Um, 
I've always thought Amsterdam was a place I'd like to live, uh, you know, and I imagine myself cycling down by the canals, going to pick up my bread and my cheese and stuff. But <laughs> what, what's the reality of it like there? It's quite a bustling place now. Oh, but it is still exactly what you envision, you know, cycling. I cycle to work every day, even in January, even when it's pouring <laughs> rain. Um, I was saying I've, I'm back in Canada visiting family this weekend, and I've been feeling car sick all week because I'm not used to being in vehicles anymore. <laughs> and so it really is the reality. And of course, the city is becoming more and more uh, touristy with every passing year. But there are still so many quiet pockets of the city, beautiful neighborhoods. If you go, go in spring when the flowers are out. Uh, it's really a stunning city. Mm. And what do you think is a key takeaway that we North Americans could take from Amsterdam and incorporate into our lifestyle to make it better? I think, yeah, two things. The cycling, it really helps you slow yourself down. And I think the nice thing about cycling, when you're on a road and passing other cyclists, you're making eye contact face to face. And I think so often when we're in our cars and, you know, we're on the highway driving to work in the morning, we become so caught up in our own little bubble and other drivers are, are just vehicles to us. And it's really different when you have that face to face contact with people. And just on a a broader level, I think what the Dutch do so well and Europeans in general is they really take the time to have a good work-life balance, um, not to put too much pressure on themselves and really give themselves the time to have a very nice, very relaxed meal with friends where they're not in a rush. It's not just about the eating, but it's really about savoring the moment in the company. Yeah, love it, love it. Well, Ellen Keith, uh, such a pleasure talking with you. We managed to get through the uh, school bells and the <laughs> school announcements there, so good luck with your speech that you're giving to your high school there. Final quick thought you'd like to leave our listeners with today. Um, yeah, I think just for me... If you're not normally a historical fiction reader, I would say give it a chance. I think it's the best way not only to learn about history, it brings things alive and it, it totally new light, but it also teaches us a lot about what's going on in our world today. I see so many reflections in other books that I read uh, that are so relevant today. And if you want to take a step back and have a different perspective of what's going on around you, uh, try picking up a historical fiction book. Perfect. Thank you so much, Ellen Keith, uh, for being with us today. Appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. You can find out more about Ellen at ellenkeith.ca, ellenkeith.ca. And the book again, The Dutch Wife. Well, please stay with us. When we come back, we'll be joined by Sarah Smarsh uh, with her debut book, Heartland. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Let's see if I... I guess that... <sighs> This just isn't working. Knowing you have a great idea for a book is one thing. Writing it, another. So what's stopping you? Maybe you can't find time. Maybe you don't know where to begin. Maybe you wrote a couple of chapters, then disappeared down a rabbit hole. Or maybe you'd rather someone else write it for you. Partnering with the right coach or ghostwriter can make all the difference between talking about your book and finishing your book. As an award-winning writer and strategic consultant, Vicki St. Clair's storytelling credits span from business, health, self-help, and memoir to New York Times and USA Today best-selling anthologies. Vicki partners with people just like you 
at the exact level you need. Whether you need a little encouragement, editorial guidance, or full-blown ghostwriting and consulting services. If you're serious about telling the story you know is inside you, stop procrastinating. Let's get your story down on paper. Contact Vicki today. Email Vicki at VickiStClair.com or call 1-800-495-7617. See more about Vicki and her work at VickiStClair.com. Monday on Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Linda K. Klein's important new book is part memoir, part journalism, part cultural commentary. In pure, inside the evangelical movement that shamed a generation of young women and how I broke free. Klein shares how the system of mind and body shaming works and discusses the importance of facing your fears and standing up to faith-based and other forms of sexual shaming. Join us live Monday at noon Pacific time and catch up on past shows at conversationslive.net looking for unconditional love an exercise buddy or a great listener pause as the dog or cat of your dreams just waiting to meet you we've made thousands of perfect matches since 1967 because everyone needs a warm safe place to call home find out more today at pause.org or call 425-787-2500 did you know that capsizing boats and people falling overboard account for over 70% of boating fatalities? 80% of those fatalities occur on boats under 26 feet and on boats with operators who've had no formal boating instruction. 50% of all boating accidents involve alcohol. Be smart this summer. Know who you're boating with. Wear a Coast Guard approved life jacket and don't drink and boat. This message is brought to you by supporters of Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair and the JMB Group, who wish you safe boating fun. Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair has a new Facebook page, so you can see what's happening on our show and what we're up to between shows. Like us on Facebook and look out for upcoming contest drawings. Easy on the ears, good for the soul. Alternative Talk 1150. And welcome back, everyone. Welcome back. Well, we are joined now by Sarah Smarsh. Her new book is called Heartland, a memoir of working hard and being broke in the richest country on earth. Uh, Sarah's articles on class and the working poor have been published by Harper's, The New York Times, NewYorker.com, and many, many others. Some of her most recent essays are on the activism of low-income women and underreported progressive uprisings in the so-called red states. She has an MFA in nonfiction writing from Columbia University and was recently a fellow at Harvard University's Sharon Stein Center on Media Politics and Public Policy. Sarah Smarsh, welcome. Thanks so much for having me on, Vicki. It is my pleasure, and congratulations. Uh, you've written a ton of stuff, but this is your first uh, book, undoubtedly not your last. <laughs> um, some of the things that are being said about it, let's just begin with that. Um, it's described as an eye-opening story of working class, as searing, timely, blazingly eloquent, as a powerful message of class bias, a challenge to look beyond tired stereotypes of the rural Midwest. And Barbara Ehrenreich, one, actually one of my favorite authors, uh, Barbara mm, Ehrenreich, author of Nickel and Dimed, says, you might think that a book about growing up poor uh, on a Kansas farm would qualify as sociology, and Heartland certainly does, but this book is so much more. It is poetry, 
of the wind and snow, the two-lane roads running through the wheat, the summer nights when work-drained families drink and dance under the prairie sky. That's quite a nice blurb to get for the front of your book there from from Barbara. It was, (laughs) and a humbling one, to be sure. Yeah. So you researched this book and wrote it over the course of a 15-year period. What what started this for you, Sarah? What compelled you to put 15 years of your life into this? Mm. Um, you know, it's hard sometimes to answer these questions that at, at the helm of the pre, uh, creative process can feel sort of mystical and mysterious. Um, but the best I can tell you is that even as a kid, um, I, you know, I had a natural predisposition as a writer, and I suppose I was going to end up writing about something. Um, I also had an awareness of my family as um, kind of a, a cast of particularly extreme and wild characters in some way. Um, and as I got a little older and, and began to understand kind of our, our place in the American story, uh, I realized how what, what a dearth of such stories exist in contemporary literature and popular culture. So, um, you know, I felt like uh, I had particularly perhaps the, the, the right qualifications to, to bring a story forth about a place and a class and a people that is either ignored or, or stereotyped. Um, so it really began as, I guess, a kind of personal um, mission, and then it expanded to kind of a more uh, public awareness and hoping to be in service to some bigger conversation. Mm. It, it's, I was reading the New York uh, Times book review on it, and they said in there that... Um, this book uh, belongs really in its own section in the nonfiction aisles across the country. Uh, uh, maybe America's post-industrial decline or perhaps simply class. Mm-hmm. And um, you say that class is not uh, uh, was not mentioned when you were growing up. Yeah, you know, I think that we just now are at this moment um, in this relatively young United States of America uh, when we are in some sort of mainstream way, really reckoning with the extent to which our society is indeed a class structure. And many of the strata in that structure are far more crystallized um, and difficult to transcend than we have been telling ourselves with this idea about the American dream and working hard and getting what you earn. Um, So I think that, um, you know, there earlier in my journalism career, I I found that... um, Editors at UK-based publications were often more amenable to the themes of my writing, and mm. um, and I started to kind of develop a theory that that just um, not to say that class issues aren't pervasive in the UK, but 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 at least the conversation has been acknowledged and had for far longer than than in the US. So um, so yeah, it, it feels like um, it's certainly not a new story, but there is a new willingness to face it at this moment of historic wealth inequality. Yes, that is interesting because obviously growing up in England, class is talked about actually quite a bit. Um, Certainly when I was growing up um, and with my grandparents, especially because they came from a Victorian era. So that was Mm. very predominant then. Um, And one of the things I always understood about America before I moved here and when I first moved here was that it's a classless society, which Mm -hmm. I very quickly felt it was not. Right. (laughs) It just maybe we weren't talking about it. Yes, I think that's right. Yeah. 
So what made you want to tell the story in the way you did it? And um, it's part memoir. It's been described as part social analysis, part mm-hmm. cultural commentary. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think I really, even though I've made my living as a journalist, um, the book project really began with the memoir piece. Um, so I always had this sort of bifurcated existence as a writer. So I was kind of a mercenary making my money as a scribe writing um, all sorts of things. Um, and then I, this project that felt like really kind of my life's work, even a, as a very young writer, um, I had in a drawer and I would take it out and work on it when I could. And in, and in, in those years, it was really um, about my family and just, you know, plainly telling the stories that for no purpose other than that they had happened and I believed that they were valuable and deserved to be read. Um, and uh, then, so, so some of the passages in, in this book were, were literally written when I was like 22 years old about some of the memories of the farm I grew up on and, and so on. I'm 38 now. Um, and uh, then, the you know, as I kind of alluded to earlier, the, um, the, the bigger picture of the context in which my family lived um, came into view, and my own sort of class journey really equipped me with the language for articulating what was going on and why, you know, when I was a first-generation college student, I didn't know that term at the time, and there was Mm -hmm. very little language for um, describing my particular experience and what made me a sort of other in some ways in the context of higher education. Um, And, uh, you know, it's like you you can't really – I felt at a gut level that there was something – increasingly rare in the American story about my life experience for being rural and also um, just, uh, you know, um, timeless in some ways as, as well. Uh, so then I, I folded those um, that public awareness in at later, later points in the writing process. Right, right. And just to give a synopsis of how you grew up here, um, I'm going to read this from the book jacket because it says it perfectly well. Um, born a fifth generation Kansas wheat farmer on her paternal side and the daughter of generations of teen mothers on, on your maternal side. Um, you grew up in a family of laborers trapped in a cycle of, of poverty, people who basically aged far beyond their years uh, because they worked nonstop, right? Yeah, that's right. And, you know, it's it's almost surreal to me even now after many years of writing about class and considering the terms that we use for describing things like poverty. It it nonetheless feels weird to have you um, read that um, description because when we were when I was in that moment, I, I did not by any stretch of the imagination think of myself as poor. Um, we were uh, we had enough to eat. Um, we had a roof over our heads, and as far as we concern, were concerned, you know, that was, I don't know if we never um, uh, dealt in, in class terminology, but if someone would have asked us, I suppose we would have fancied ourselves middle class or something just because we weren't starving. Um, of course, we were incredibly economically disadvantaged, and that, as you noted, um, uh, showed it revealed itself on our very bodies, you know. So, so, so much of the work done in the place I'm from is physical, manual, um, and uh, taxing in in a way that that makes class a reality that's felt um, not just um, politically or psychologically or socially, but but just at 
the physical level of the body. Right, right. One of the things I took away is what great characters you were surrounded by. Um, you know, your your grandfather, Arnie, your, uh, his wife, Betty, who was your maternal grandmother. Yes. What a life that lady had. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you know, I have to say, I, I can't imagine that this book would exist without her because when I was mentioning earlier that as a very young budding writer, I was first put, setting my sights on my family, really she was the central character in my understanding that there was something really compelling about the story swirling around me. Um, and that was because, I mean, she's she's sort of a bigger-than-life figure, and um, in many ways she led an, a, a, a particularly chaotic life, even within the context of the um, uh, r- reliably chaotic experience of poverty. Um, and and she's just a really cool lady and witty and funny. And, um, you know, my my writing, like anyone's, has strengths and weaknesses, I suppose. What, um, what I often hear that there's good dialogue in, in what I write, and I just say, like, well, that's not my doing. That's the storytellers and the um, sharp-witted, uh, mostly women, who I, who I was raised by. Yeah, I mean, generations of, of single moms, and I read that uh, you attribute part of your escape, if you will, uh, from that life to the fact that you did not become a single mom. Yeah, I think that when we talk about poverty and class, um, you know, it's, we should always be careful to tend to the ways in which it intersects with race, gender, and myriad other um identity demographics. So um, as for the gender piece, being the, as as far back as I can trace my direct maternal line, uh, every woman um, had her first pregnancy as a teenager. And I was just keenly aware of that as a kid. And um, I'm not sure, you know, I I didn't, I didn't know it in any sort of like, um, in, in the way of knowledge, the way that, you know, statistics about poverty and pregnancy, but I felt it because, um, you know, my mom struggled. She uh, had a hard row as a very young mother, and um, and I was uh, the direct witness to those struggles, and I understood somehow just at a gut level that they, in part, had to do with the fact that I existed, um, which uh, has everything to do with the relationship between being a female body uh, and being poor. Mm. We need to take a quick break. Uh, Lots more questions for you, Sarah, when we come back. Thanks. My guest is Sarah Smash. Her new book, Heartland, a memoir of working hard and being broke in the richest country on earth. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Please stay with us. This is Martha Norwalk, every Sunday morning beginning at 9 a.m. Thanks in part to the Northwest School of Animal Massage, we cover the world of animals. This week, September 23rd, it's another Behavior Training and Healing Sunday with me. As an animal behavior therapist and trainer, I'd love to hear from you with any behavior training or healing questions you have about your animal friends. You can also call in about any animal-related issue or cause you'd like to talk about. Open phone lines, Martha Norwalk's Animal World, Sunday morning, 9 a.m. to noon, right here on Alternative Talk, a.m. 1150. 180 over 111, and I had a stroke. I couldn't speak or walk. This is high blood pressure. Get back on your plan. Go to loweryourhbp.org. Brought to you by the American Stroke Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. At Sundown Communications, we find that most of our clients are brilliant at what they do. 
but they lack the time and resources to write and create business messaging that delivers results. That's where we come in, providing a diverse range of professional copywriting services for fresh strategic web content, PR, advertising and promotion, marketing, speeches, and much more. Call us today so you can focus on what you do best, and we'll do the rest. Call 800-495-7617. That's 800-495-7617. Monday on Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Linda K. Klein's important new book is part memoir, part journalism, part cultural commentary. In pure, inside the evangelical movement that shamed a generation of young women and how I broke free. Klein shares how the system of mind and body shaming works and discusses the importance of facing your fears and standing up to faith-based and other forms of sexual shaming. Join us live Monday at noon Pacific time and catch up on past shows at conversationslive.net. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Talk radio to help you heal and stay healthy. Find our app in the Apple App Store or Google Play Store and take us with you wherever you go. Alternative Talk, AM 1150. And welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. My guest is Sarah Smarsh. Her book, Heartland, a memoir of working hard and being broke in the richest country on earth and it's described as an eye-opening and startlingly observed story of working class poverty by an extraordinary talent and uh, Sarah I want to um, as you're talking through the book you you open you you are speaking to your imaginary child and I know there was a reason for this but would you share that why you why you took that approach sure you know in terms of um relationship to, to the themes of the book, kind of um, attempting to articulate things that, for me as a kid, um, I found um, very mysterious. Um, I really wanted to, uh, a, a group that I had in mind was just kids who are, who are now in the role that I once was in, which is um, sort of helpless within the context of, of poverty that they're born into. And um, and so this uh, address that I'm giving to this would have been kid um, is is also in some ways me talking to millions of kids in that in that um, station and and in some more psychological ways probably me talking to my child self uh, and and the hope was to validate their sense of self worth. Um, which I think is innate to every child, but um, if you are born with various um, identity factors stacked against you, um, in my case it was um, economic and, and also my gender. Um, for other kids it might be their race or sexual orientation and so on. Um, when, when you have a sense of your own self-worth um, that might be innate to any child, and, and yet you're moving through this society and culture that is um, continually attempting to tear that down. That um, inner sense of one's self-worth um, is so essential to maintain and hold on to in spite of all the external messages to the contrary um, for, for a happy life. So um, that's a sort of a lofty goal, I suppose, in terms of communication and, and a humble book, but um, but that was my hope. Right, right. 
Um, you write about the um, shame, the residue of shame uh, of being poor and white. You say we failed our children. Uh, we failed these children. Would you elaborate a little bit more on that? Sure. Um, you know, shame is a really hard emotion to pinpoint um, or to become aware of. So I think, you know, when I was a little kid um, or a teenager or a first-generation college student or even a young professional entering spaces that no one from my family had ever entered, um, I wasn't consciously thinking to myself, oh, I feel ashamed. I, I actually experienced myself as as confident, and I, I always told myself at least that I deserved to be wherever I was and mm-hmm. and I believed in myself. That said, um, with the vantage of a few more years, I can look back and see um, that absolutely I was carrying a, a deep sense of um, concern about the judgment that the world around me had for the place I was from, and therefore I very rationally presumed um, ju- that same judgment might be directed at me. So... Um, you know, when I say that we've failed our children in this country, I do mean um, in just the um, very raw elements of survival from, you know, ensuring that all of our children are fed um, and taken care of to um, the more uh, psychological and deeper elements of a sense of belonging or, um, or worth that while they are not at the base of you know, the way that we envision a hierarchy of needs, they, they are nonetheless um, central to um, humanity and um, one's existence. So, um, you know, when I was um, in fifth grade, I, I mentioned, I said earlier in our conversation that I always, we always had enough to eat. Well, kind of. Um, it was precarious in some ways. So when I went to public school and my parents went to work, um, I qualified for free lunches um, through, of course, taxpayers' money. And um, we moved around so much that sometimes, like, my the records of my immunizations or this and that would get lost in the shuffle of just the, of bureaucracy. And um, in fifth grade, I landed at a school where somehow the my qualifying for the free lunch had not moved from point A to point B. And I don't know, my mom dropped me off on the first day and went off to work and her concerns about putting food on the table at home. And, um, and I don't know, I don't, it was like I was, I, they didn't have lunch for me and I didn't have money for lunch and I hadn't brought my lunch and I was so embarrassed, um, that I, I didn't say anything to anyone. And I actually like spent that entire school year slinking off and hiding during lunch, um, and not eating. Um, so it's, uh, you know, that, that kind of gets at, I think the relationship between shame and just these the very um, most essential elements of of a kid's survival. Right, right. I know that one of the things you want to dispel, uh, that you want to dispel the myth um, that the conservative white man from coal country represents all working class because he does not. Mm. Yeah, you know, I I actually even, um, I feel reluctant sometimes about being categorized as white working class, while that is absolutely my experience. 
Um, I, I never want to participate in a conversation that is that is shining a brighter light on some aspect of the working class or the working poor than another aspect of it. So my corrective to that to those um, um, uh, misleading narratives is is that I am a woman and I'm from the Midwest and and um, you know that that same group though is diverse in a million ways um, racially in terms of religion and politics and. And um, and yet we have these sort of prevailing national ma- uh, narratives that envision um, working America as a white guy wearing a tool belt. Right, right. We've only got about a minute left here. Um, so much to talk about in this book. Uh, people are going to have great conversations around it, I'm sure. But you touch on a subject that's having such a huge and derogatory effect in America, across America, uh, especially here in Seattle, and that's opioid addiction. And you write in Heartland, in your book, of Chris's experience. You say sometimes uh, you found yourself judging her as a bad person. Um, t- tell us who Chris is. And, uh, and you say if Chris had failed, the system failed her more, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's right. So um, this opioid epidemic that's going on in the country began to um, present itself in my family many years ago, uh, long before it was a national conversation um, or even acknowledged as a problem. Um, and uh, what one the the character in the book you're referencing is my stepmother. Um, you know, I think that she was prescribed. Um, opioids for the first time by some unscrupulous physician, like literally for menstrual cramps when she was 19. Um, And so by the time I knew her as a young woman, um, my dad remarried when I was a kid. Um, She was already um, struggling on that path and with little to no, not just assistance, but validation that she even had a grievance about her own health concerns. Um, And so in this hyper-individualistic society, you know, a lot of people um, judged her for her behavior. And, um, you know, while I've um, held great love and concern toward her, to myself, I think I sometimes, um, when I was myself a very young woman, thinking about that particular, um, what some people now call substance abuse disorder, and I would have called addiction, uh, I, I put the, um, I put the onus about that on her. Um, now, with I hope a more sophisticated understanding of the way that things work in society, I see that um, actually that physician who is now in jail, by the way, um, is where, as far as I'm concerned, every bit of the um, of the blame should fall. Mm. Well, the book is is an awesome read, Heartland, a mem a memoir of working hard and being broke in the richest country on earth. Raises a lot of questions, challenges you to think differently. Um, I really appreciate you being with us today, Sarah Smosh. Thank you so much. Thank you, Vicki. This has been great. And, of course, uh, Sarah is a journalist and author of Heartland. You can find out much more about her at her website, sarahsmosh.com. We've got to run. We're right out of time. We'll see you next week. Until then, live well, live strong. Hi, this is Vicki St. Clair. If you have a business, service, or event and would like to deliver your message to a large audience, call me at 425-269-4772. Let Conversations Live shine the spotlight on you. Call 425-269-4772.